0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased indeed honored to have with us historian and author Professor Stolberg Reilinger. She is Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Münster and Rector of the Institute for Advanced Studies in Berlin. Her books include The Holy Roman Empire, A Short History by Princeton University Press and The Emperor's Old Clothes, Constitutional History and the Symbolic Language of the Holy Roman Empire. And today we are discussing her newest book, Maria Theresa, A Habsburg Empress in Her Time, published by Princeton University Press. Welcome, Professor.
0: Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me.
1: Professor, uh, why did you write this book?
0: Oh that is a the question is not easy to answer. I um I wanted to write a biography as such. I wanted to try if I'm uh, able to 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 meet this genre correctly. And then I thought about a person I could write about. And it happened that an anniversary, uh, the, the 300th anniversary of her birth um, came. So uh, the publishing house wanted me to, to write a biography on this person. But it was more or less by chance. I wanted to take one person to or a biography of one person as a kind of key to the 18th century, because I'm, um, yeah, I, I think this century is particularly interesting for us today because it is uh, such an ambiguous century. It's, it's partly pre-modern, partly Baroque pre-modern, but uh, on the other hand, also already modern in many respects. Right? It's uh, the age of enlightenment but on the other hand it's still the age of absolute monarchies of baroque piety uh, of religious uh, rule and so on so it is it has a very ambiguous character and uh, it turned out that this figure maria theresia um is a very um good key to the century because her reign covered 40 or uh, four decades of of that century she was born in 1714 and died in 17 17- 80 and so her life span covered uh, more or less the whole century and her person and her character to me seems to be uh, similarly ambiguous as the whole century and so uh, it turned out that I chose the right person to write a biography about.
1: Would it be true to say that while not uncritical of her you exercise a considerable empathy for uh, Maria Teresa.
0: Yeah, empathy may be the wrong word,
1: because, I mean, when you... I use the word empathy in the the Rankian sense.
0: uh, Yeah, I mean, I I try to distance myself from the figure, because I mean, she lived in the 18th century. The 18th century is very, in many respects, very far away from us. It is... uh, Dangerous, or there is the danger of uh, of anachronism if you uh, if you have the illusion that you are able to immediately or directly understand a person of that century. So I try to take a distance perspective and a kind of ethnographic gaze, so to speak, to to uh, look to to focus on the on the the strange, the distant, the foreign uh, traits of the century, as well as of her character, uh, because I am convinced that um, the way many biographers write about that person, uh, namely by um, kind of introspective uh, writing, yeah, is misleading. Because uh, if you if you write about a century uh, 300 years ago, you have to be aware of the of all the obstacles to immediate understanding, and um, this is why I try to avoid too much empathy, and I try to to uh, keep her at arm's length, so to speak. And then, of course, when you when you uh, are occupied with one person for such a long time, and it took me years, of course, to write the book, you get acquainted so you get familiar with a person in a way and um so in the end when i when uh, i wrote about her death i i did have empathy with with the person but it took me a long time and there are many there are many uh, traits of her character that are not very um not very nice to say the least and so um yeah there is not so much sympathy with the person and empathy also only in a very limited uh, degree.
1: Uh, from what you say, it comes across more as an anthropologist rather than a historian.
0: Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. Because, I mean, this is the early modern period or pre-modern period, I would say, in, in, in German, but... Um, for modern, um, and so, to my opinion, it is uh, misleading to take a presentist view on, on a, a person like her. For example, like other biographers did. For example, if you uh, take her as uh, an example for a um, f- for for modern um, women as a as a feminist avant la lettre, that, that would be completely misleading, in my opinion, because The way she um, combined professional life, or rule, and family cannot be compared in any respect to uh, the problems a, a modern uh, mother and, and professional woman would have. So uh, uh, this is a completely different relationship between, um, between uh, rule and, and family, uh, in her case, and what we uh, would call uh, a working, working woman today. So it, it, this is all absolutely misleading. Uh, she was no feminist. On the contrary, I mean, she she was, of course, a very powerful woman, but she was always and perceived herself as the exception to the rule, the absolute exception to the rule. And she um, wanted her daughters to submit to their husbands. So she was absolutely no feminist. And so when I read other biographies uh, about her, uh, written by women um, who try to... Uh, depict her as an example for modern um, feminism, this is, I think, the wrong way, because you just, um, I mean, this is a presentist view, and uh, if you look at her in this way, you will all, only find what you already know. So it is much more interesting, in my opinion, to to look at what is what is unfamiliar, what is foreign, what is, what is strange, what is maybe also odd or strange. So yeah, this is my, my general approach um, when I deal with uh, the early modern period.
1: What are your three principles, as you term them, of the biographical art?
0: One is, as I already said, uh, this, this ethnographic gaze so to speak um, that was this is my my crucial methodological principle in general um, but then I would also mention that I try to um, combine narrative and analytical elements I, I try to narrate her story in order to to make the book readable <laughs> um, but also to in in um, writing stories uh, to um, to convey also messages about the structure of rule or the structure of, um, uh, generally, the structure of, of the time. So narrative and analytical elements, um, I try to combine these narrative and analytical elements. And also, um, in the same way, to combine macro-structural yeah, history, um, history of of structures of rule, of politics, of religion, of whatever, uh, of of uh, gender history and so on. And on the other hand, um, to uh, to to make this visible uh, by micro stories, by by little significant uh, telling stories uh, yeah, that reveal structural elements of the time. So I wanted to explain. Uh, the century by narrating little stories, um, and I try to find. And, and the sources are extremely rich, so you can easily find telling little stories, little anecdotes, and so on uh, that reveal a, a lot about the whole century. Um, and um, yeah, this um, uh, my 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 third principle was uh, to and this overlaps with with what I said before, Uh, I tried to avoid the illusion of omniscience. I wanted to, um, I'm not an omniscient narrator, but I tried to combine a lot of different perspectives of contemporaries to, um, to look at the person from many, many different angles. And I wanted to avoid the impression that there is one uh and the one and only right portrait of her, so these are my my principle my principles uh when i when well, my principles when I wrote the book
1: What do we know for certain about maria Therese's childhood
0: um about her childhood we do not uh, actually know that much because um when she was a child, her father still expected to have a male heir. And so um, there are not uh, so many sources about her childhood and she was not uh, perceived in the sources as a a, a significant individual yet, um, because it was not yet clear that she would become uh, the the heiress and the the ruler. Um, We do know about court rituals like baptism, for example, but also uh, we know a little bit about her education, about her teachers, about um, uh, the disciplines she uh, she was educated in, for example, uh, that she was a very good singer and dancer, and that she had uh, already as a child uh, um, an adequate courtly habitus and a courtly uh, attitude that she um, um was able to uh, to 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 present herself on the court stage i mean the stage the, the was um was a uh kind of theater and uh, rulers and the ruling family had to present themselves um all the time uh, day by day in uh in the way of yeah like a like a um kind of theater performance and she was um, trained to to do that from a very early age on, but uh, she was not that. Um, I mean, she had good teachers. She she was uh, educated in um, uh, several languages, uh, French and Italian, and uh, also a little bit of Latin, and so on. So her education was not so far away from the education of a of a male prince but um she as a as a little girl, did not leave so many uh, traces in in the sources um as she would have uh, if she had been the heiress or if it would have been clear already then that she would be the heiress
1: of the throne Why did she marry Francis of Lorraine
0: um so it is always been it has always been told as if she had uh, married him by inclination it was a marriage uh, by inclination because this uh were, i would say this was a, a a story of the 19th century as the 19th century historians would have it um, but um, and and they did obviously uh, love each other there is a correspondence um uh, of their between them, which is, I mean, they sent love letters to each other, they did, and that was very rare at the time. But it was not just a marriage by inclination, it was also, of course, as always in these ruling houses, uh, a marriage by political strategy. And uh, her father, Emperor Charles VI, um, wanted her to marry a lesser prince um, and not um, an heir of, uh, of a, well, a powerful uh, dynasty, uh, because he wanted to avoid that the Habsburg lands would become just parts of another great monarchy. So that was um, what he um, was afraid of, of course. If she had married a very uh, um, an heir of a very yeah of a great dynasty. Um, after the marriage, uh, after her succession to the throne, her husband would have taken over the rule and would have potentially integrated the Habsburg lands into his monarchy. And so to avoid that, um, he, uh, her father chose, chose this, um, this, so to speak, prince without a land. I mean, he was absolutely poor in, in, <laughs> in, the, uh, in the sense of the time. So he had no territory at all uh, when he married um, uh, Maria Theresia. Yeah. And that was just what the Habsburg house wanted. Uh, and, and it was a kind of um, it was luck, luck for Maria Theresia that she also lo- really loved him. And um, but that was not the reason for, for this marriage.
1: Now, the fact that he was uh, land poor, does that explain why he was so disliked by the Viennese court?
0: Um, yeah, there were f- uh, several several reasons for that. I mean, he was he was disrespected at uh, the Habsburg court because um, he was seen to be to be weak, timid, uh, lazy, indecisive, and so on, which is not. Uh, not absolutely true, I mean, it's partly true, but not uh, not completely so um, he was he was interested in politics um, and he tried to influence uh, his wife and he tried to act as an emperor. I mean he was elected emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which was the um the highest uh, honor in in Christian Europe, but um, he uh, it was it uh, turned out very soon that uh, she wouldn't let him uh, rule as an emperor as a as a as a sovereign prince. But why he was de- disrespected at court um, had had several reasons. So the first point was that some courtiers would have preferred another husband for Maria Theresia, namely from the House of Bavaria, the House of Wittelsbach. Because there were um, um, uh, there were relatives of the House of Bavaria at the court, there were uh, strong um, ties of kinship between these houses, and so there was a Bavarian party, so to speak, at uh, the court of Vienna. They would have preferred a Bavarian prince. So um, this party at the court uh, would disrespect him for uh, not being barbarian but he was also perceived and there was an important point as a french foreigner as a as a as, a, as french and france was the arch enemy of um, of the house of habsburg so he um, was perceived as french and he was also um, disrespected because in the first years, before he was elected emperor, um, he didn't manage to fulfill his most important aristocratic duties. So he wasn't able in the first years to beget a male heir. In the first years, Maria Theresia only had uh, girls. (laughs) So it was, of course, his most important task to beget a male heir, which he didn't. Um, and the second most important aristocratic task was, of course, to be uh, a military hero, and he also failed in uh, on the battlefield. I mean, he was sent uh, as a military commander um, uh, against the Turks by his uh, father-in-law, and, uh, and he was uh, not at all successful. So he lost parts of the conquests his predecessors had, um, had made. So he failed in, in several respects um, as an aristocratic, uh, on, on, it, on, so to speak. And the last point, which is also, I think, important, when it turned out that um, as a husband, he was more or less dominated by his wife, um, he was disrespected because this turned the gender order upside down. Upside down. Now he um, um, he appeared as a as a as a weak man, as a man who is not able to dominate his wife. And this was although she was the heiress uh, to the throne. This was something that contemporaries uh, did not uh, appreciate. So there were a lot of reasons why. Um, he had a very bad stand at, at the Viennese court.
1: Maria, today is 1740, 1741. What was the myth and what was the reality of uh, that person and that time?
0: Um, when she ascended to the throne as a very young woman, uh, as a as a beautiful woman, as the contemporaries called her, um, as a, a fecund woman she uh, was attacked from all sides almost immediately and uh, from not only by uh, the Prussian King Frederick the Great but also by the Bavarian um elector, prince elector uh, and especially also by the french so and and several others so um she was attacked her her lands were attacked from all sides, and this um and everyone would have expected her to um, uh, to to be defeated in a very short uh, um, uh, very very short time, but she managed to defend her traditional birthright, and she only lost one of her provinces, which was a very great loss. But uh, anyway, uh, the, her her enemies had already. Planned to uh, distribute all her lands among themselves. So, so it was um, it was the absolutely unexpected thing. I mean, we are talking now in April 2022, and there are certain perils that come to my mind that uh, uh, yeah, a country is being um, attacked from. Uh, one side and against all expectations manages to defend itself, and this is of course um, this is of course uh, stuff for um, for a fairy tale. Yeah, the beautiful princess uh, attacked by from all sides by evil enemies, uh, male evil an- enemies, and she the the beautiful female um, uh, is able to defend herself with the help. Um, her Hungarian, um, the, the, yeah, the the Hungarian nobles, the wild noble warriors of Hungary, and who who enthusiastically supported this weak uh, beautiful woman. So this is this is really a fairy tale plot, and um, this is one of the reasons why she was so. Yeah, she was. She, she's really. She's a mythical figure. She became a mythical figure in uh, Austrian history. But if you have a closer look at this story about the weak princess and the the noble warriors and so on, um, it is it is of course a legendary uh, story because in reality i mean she she did defend her lands, and the 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 Hungarians did support her but uh that was not the enthusiastic support uh, as it was depicted by historians, but there were uh very um strong uh, negoti, very very harsh negotiations between her and the um and the uh, estates of Hungary and uh, a lot of hungarian nobles uh, did not uh it wasn't uh, wasn't clear from the beginning that they would uh support her so if you if you look at the um, minutes of these um, these this uh, diet of of um, of 1741 you will see that uh, yeah it is not this fairy tale story as it was told in uh, the 19th century. But um, it is, on the other hand, it is clear why this story was so appealing, that this story was so, uh, yeah, um, that that her mythical, charismatic uh, image um, was based on this story of her um, unexpected uh, victory, or not victory, but defendants of of her
1: lands. Why did she she refuse to be crowned Holy Roman Empress?
0: Yeah, this is uh, not so easy to explain. I mean, what is important to know is that the Holy Roman Empire is not, or it has to be distinguished from the Habsburg Empire. These are two completely different things. The Habsburg Empire means the Lands of the Archducal House of Habsburg, to which uh, belonged uh, belonged um, Hungary, Bohemia, Austria, and so on, and a lot of and also parts of the Netherlands, parts of Italy, and so on. This is the Habsburg Empire. and she was king, she was king, not queen, but king of Bohemia, she was king of Hungary. She was crowned um, as king. Explicitly so. So it was, um, she was very proud of her own masculine crowns, as she called them. The Holy Roman Empire, on the other hand, was something completely different. That was the a loose federation of principalities, of electorates, of um, electoral principalities, Kurfürstentümer in German, and of uh, cities and so on, a huge, vast bundle of. Different, uh, different political entities under the uh, superiority of the, the emperor. And the, this empire, or the, the, the honor, or the office of emperor, was an electoral office. So you were elected emperor. You inherited the crown of Hungary and the crown of Bohemia and so on, but you were elected emperor. And at that time, or in the early modern period, a woman could, under certain conditions, inherit a land of her from her yeah, of her dynasty, but she could not be elected emperor. So uh, that was for the contemporaries absolutely clear: a woman can never be elected uh, uh, um, emperor. And so uh, she had her. Husband, Francis Stephen, um, elected emperor for various reasons. The, the so called electors, the Kurfürsten, um, elected him as the new emperor. But she, and, and he was crowned emperor, but she would never have been the empress in the strict sense of the word. She would have just been the emperor's um, consort or the emperor's spouse but not empress in the sense of a sovereign ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. And this is why she she, uh, explicitly and deliberately uh, refused to to be crowned empress of the Holy Roman Empire, um, because this was, so to speak, her husband's business, and she did not want to submit to her husband in this in this respect, yeah, um, because this was not her own crown; it would have been, um, uh, uh, um uh, yeah, it would have been a secondary crown, so to speak. No? and so the the coronation of the emperor, emperor, and the coronations of the the king of Hungary, king of Bohemia, were completely different things, completely different uh, matters. And the 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 case shows, I mean, Francis Stephen wanted her to be crowned. Empress next to him, yeah, um, or even by him after his coronation, but she refused. Although he really wanted her to um, to um, to be crowned, he implored her to get crowned, but she uh, refused. And this also um, shows and not only that she did not want to appear as being dominated by her husband. But also, she also uh, showed by the refusal of the coronation uh, a certain disrespect to the Holy Roman Empire as such, uh, because in the 18th century this this loose federation um, of, of principalities already showed a lot of um, dysfunctional. Um, um, uh, yeah, there were a lot of problems of of. Uh, weakness of um, medieval uh, anachronistic structure and so on uh, and so she she also disrespected this whole political yeah, medieval oldish uh, uh, yeah, political body of the holy roman empire and that was also an important reason for her refusing um the coronation but one must also say that It was important for her that her husband um, would be crowned and that the house of Habsburg um, uh, could use and instrumentalize the office of emperor in several respects. So that was still an important office with certain privileges over all the other princes with a symbolical um, uh, a priority, I mean a superiority over all the other princes of the empire. and so this this symbolic capital of uh, the Holy Roman Empire was something she um she uh, would would instrumentalize for her dynasty and for her own reign.
1: What was the in essence, from your description, would it be correct to say that Maria today is a view of the Holy Roman Empire? in purely a pragmatic and utilitarian sense, and had absolutely no illusions or romanticisms about it.
0: Yes, 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 I would agree, yes. I mean, she was well aware that uh, there were certain um, advantages of having the office of emperor in the whole... in in the own... um, under her uh, rule or under her uh, that she could dominate uh, this office that it was in her house um and so she used that the emperor was still the supreme judge of the emperor uh, of the empire and he was still the supreme uh, feudal lord of all the princes of the empire and so and so and and these uh offices or honors could still be used uh, in a very um uh, yeah she used them in a very smart way so uh also a certain power over the over the church in uh the holy roman empire in several respects that was an advantage and she made use of that without really believing in uh in this empire
1: how did maria theresa conduct patronage politics at, in and out of the court
0: mm-hmm. yeah um uh, I mean, patronage was the logic, uh, the social logic uh, of uh, the time, of course, and uh, all, poli- all, all politics were family politics. And so uh, she um, was able to use the system of patronage at her court, and her court was the richest and most. Uh, Famous and highest court in in all Europe, uh, she was able to use this in a very sophisticated, very smart way. Although she um, she pretended or she staged herself as being um, absolutely beyond all um, beyond all partisanship, or so huh? she uh, was was very smart in uh, staging herself as the um the sovereign uh, beyond all um beyond all factions or beyond all parties um and she was also um charismatic in that she um she she mastered the art of um spreading her favor and dispersing her favor among people and keeping their expectations alive i mean she could never of course um, um, satisfy all expectations because everyone and the court was the place where everyone wanted to be and where everyone expected uh, favors and and uh, symbolic as well as financial economic capital and she could of course never um, um, do justice to all of them um, to all to everyone who expected something from the court but she was she did um uh um spread out all kinds of favours in a way that uh in a in a very balanced way so that everyone um kept his or her expectations alive and, and that was uh one of I think the um solutions to the, the the puzzling question how she managed to be so um so popular so uh yeah why she had this charismatic image. Although Actually, she she did not, of course, satisfy everyone who came to her court. She didn't. She, she was not at all accessible to everyone, even the lowest of subjects, as uh, as everyone thought. Yeah? So it is really interesting that she was um, she she handled the social logic or the instruments of, of patronage at court in a very sophisticated way, so that. Um, yeah she she managed to um, to to develop this image of the perfect ruler and very even more so as she was a woman and uh that was of course completely unexpected because the um the contemporaries were convinced that women were weak uh, in in um, uh, spirit soul and body and wouldn't wouldn't be able to um to, to, to really rule. Uh, and so she, um, she disappointed all these expectations and uh, uh, it was, she was all the more admired uh, as contemporaries thought of uh, were of the opinion that she combined all male and female virtues in one person.
1: Why, by the standards of the period, was Maria Theresa considered very beautiful in her youth?
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, uh, she was uh, beauty. Female beauty was, of course, part of her role as uh, as a princess, um, and beauty was, so to speak, part of her status. Uh, the, the most powerful woman uh, would also be the most beautiful woman uh, in the eyes of the time, uh, like a fairy queen. I mean, the, the princess and the fairy queen is always is always beautiful, is always the most beautiful of, of women. And so, um, like uh, everything else, beauty was a matter of status at the time, and of course also a matter of staging. I mean, she would be staged as beautiful, and that was hard work. Also, I mean, um, she, um, she she presented herself as being beautiful, and the the criteria of beauty of the time were uh, linked to status. For example, um, beauty mm, would mean white skin. White skin means no labor. Yeah, you, she she wasn't forced to labor in in the sun. To, to work in the sun, uh, she, had, she had white skin, he had, she had a majestic walk. Yeah? She, uh, she uh, would be uh, discovered, e- even if she, when she was wearing a mask on carnival, she would uh, be um, discovered as being the queen, uh, identified as the queen, um, uh, immediately because of her majestic walk, as the contemporary claimed, at least, or her upright posture was aristocratic or her, um, her fair gaze and, and things like that. So all these criteria show that beauty was a matter of high aristocratic status on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, of course, a matter of perfect performance, a matter of uh, uh, hard work. Yeah, And it is interesting that um, uh, contrary to her myth, um her myth was that she spent no time and no effort on her outfit, that she was absolutely modest and etc. But that is absolutely not true. If you have a closer look at the sources you can see that uh, uh, that was she took uh, her beauty and her uh, uh, appearance extremely seriously and uh she um she for example once wrote to one of her daughters that uh, you have to represent yourself all the time. Uh, Il faut représenter partout. She writes, yeah, wherever you go, you have to represent your yourself, your status, and everything. So um, she was well aware of that. That the, the visual appearance is extremely uh, important um, as a means of of rule, and so um, uh, she she uh, was very very good at that. And, but on, on the other hand, when she grew older, she was she became uh, very heavy, and she um, had a sense of self irony, and she called herself uh, Fat Teresa, ironically, and and self critically, and, and that was uh, that is also interesting. In a way, she was not she was not vain or idle, so, so she was, uh, but but she used her uh, appearance as a means of Um,
1: of uh, yeah of rule what was the so-called charity commission chastity I'm sorry chastity
0: (laughs) chastity the chastity commission yeah this is very uh, famous or infamous um, because it was uh, so unusual at the time she um, installed a commission or established a commission uh, to investigate and prosecute All kinds of adultery and fornication, Um, and uh, what was uh, scandalous was that she wanted to be um, this to be persecuted without regard to status, and that was absolutely uh, unusual because um, at the time there were double standards. Um, Common men would be sentenced to death for for. As it was called sodomy at the time, yeah. But um, I mean, this was re- very rarely executed. But uh, formally, uh, there was death penalty for for these kind of sexual um, deviance. Um, but quarters noblemen, uh, aristocrats would cultivate at the same time uh, same-sex relationships. Yeah? For and also, of course, would have uh, mattresses and everything. So there was a clear um, double standard, or, or one could say, a, a complex code of conduct for uh, always uh, related to, uh, to to status and and relationships. So uh, an aristocratic married man would have would uh, could do whatever he wanted in sexual uh, matters, whereas on the other. Uh, part of, on the other end of the, of the um, spectrum, an unmarried, uh, young, aristocratic woman um, would have the strongest restrictions in that respect. So, uh, and in between, there was a, a, a broad uh, spectrum of, um, of norms and, uh, yeah, re, um, related to uh, status, age, uh, if you were married or unmarried or, or not married or um uh or a widow or uh, and so on so um there one no, there was not something like um a general norm in sexual affairs but a broad variety of different norms so the chastity commission was um an an attempt to um To ban all kinds of sexual um, deviances um, whatsoever, without respect, without regard to to status and person, and that was um, um, conceived of as a scandal for contemporaries, and they uh, they laughed at her. I mean uh, that she tried to to uh, establish that kind of general general rule was was uh, ridiculous at the time, and So uh, even her greatest admirers criticized her about about this uh, so-called chastity commission. And it was, of course, not um, successful, but she tried. I mean, um, it was it was really harsh uh, because she um, used to deport um, women uh, and and also men whom she uh, who, who violated these new rules. To Transylvania, she, there was yeah uh, once every uh, year at a certain time uh, all these um, delinquents would be sent to Transylvania and uh, yeah deported uh, from uh, the, from her lands and that was. Um, that was detrimental. Many of them um, had nothing to to, uh, to gain their living in uh, Transylvania and and uh, starved from hunger or um, yeah or returned to uh, the Habsburg lands. So the whole thing, this whole chastity um, uh, program, was uh, a complete failure.
1: What was Maria Theresa's relation to what is known in the anglophone world as the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment.
0: Yeah, this is a very interesting question because, um, yeah, she had this was an completely ambiguous uh, relationship because on the one hand, Maria Theresa, as a very very pious, very religious uh, woman, detested uh, the and feared. The movement of enlightenment, especially uh, French enlightenment, um, that what we usually call enlightenment, uh, let's say uh, the texts or the, the um, writings by Voltaire, uh, Rousseau, uh, the Diderot, D'Alembert, the Encyclopédie, for example, and all these kind of uh, French literature, French uh, writings, um, she detested, yeah, and she was afraid of them. Um, because uh, and she called them um, she called that philosophy à la mode um, yeah? and um, the philosophers, the modern philosophers um, had no faith, no morals, no uh, accepted no authority, and so on. that was her um idea about the enlightenment, but on the other hand, she did not really know the enlightenment she she of course had never read these books she she didn 't know anything about it, she was just afraid of them and um but on the other hand um and she banned these books from her court and and she uh of course forbid her her kids to to read that and so on but on the other hand um she did not know that her uh, officials her her closest aides Uh, were strong admirers of Enlightenment, were readers of these Enlightened books. For example, Kaunitz, her most important state chancellor and most important advisor, was a a fan of of all these Enlightened uh, writings and was a kind of Trojan horse of the Enlightenment at her court. So um, much of what her advisors introduced uh, reforms and um, ideas and so on uh, also the educators of uh, her son introduced the ideas of enlightenment to her court um, without her knowing anything of that so um, this is a, also a very interesting ambiguous relationship and on the other hand one must say that uh, she was something, uh, someone who um, was absolutely able to Make use of her own of her own reason, yeah, as the famous definition of enlightenment by Immanuel Kant uh, would have it, and she she was in a way an enlightened person, for example, she fought against all kinds of superstition she uh, she banned vampirism yeah vampirism the, the belief in vampires was. Uh, flourishing at the time in in some parts of her lands and she uh she banned uh, uh this kind of superstition and and many other um superstitious practices and so on so she actually was an enlightened person, but uh she wasn't aware of that, and she was uh, on the other hand uh, uh, uh extremely hostile to what she um thought enlightenment was.
1: How did she react to the death of her husband in 1765?
0: The death of her husband was a, a real caesura in, in her reign and in her life uh, because she had a very strong uh, relationship to him, which was unusual. Usually, um, uh, princely couples were very distanced and, and did not often did not even live together, um, not to speak of a, a common uh, shared bedroom, but this was different in, in her case. They had um, one bedroom and they slept together in one bed, which was uh, very unusual and almost a scandal at the time. And uh, one, um, one observer wrote in his diary, they do it like the peasants do, yeah? only peasants sleep in one bed. So um, that was absolutely unusual. He he was for her a very important confidant. She used to, to speak about her problems uh, with him um, uh, when they went to bed and so on. So uh, his death, his sudden death, unexpected death, was uh, a caesura in her life and uh, she became melancholic she fell into a deep melancholy. She retreated from the court almost uh, completely um and she cultivated her widowhood um in in various ways uh for example she um she um, uh, her religious exercises uh were uh, she she intensified her religious exercises she uh uh, prepared. She began to prepare for her own death. She she once wrote that she conceived of her widowhood as the preparation for death, and uh, so it was a very yeah very dark a very um, yeah depressed atmosphere at her court from that uh, moment on. And um, the the important consequence, of course, was that uh, she made her son Joseph co-regent. Um, because he and she made him, um, uh, he became uh, successor of his father as elector, of the, uh, as, as emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, and co-regent in, uh, in the Habsburg uh, regent in the Habsburg lands, and this caused um, an ongoing, uh, yeah, latent or uh, also uh, open conflict between her and her son.
1: Why did she agree to the dissolution of the Jesuit orders in the Habsburg lands?
0: Yeah, this is a question uh, that uh, touches the very complicated relationship, her relationship to the Catholic Church or the Church in general. Um, On the one hand, she was extremely pious, and the Catholic Church or the Catholic faith the one and only true Christian faith, in her eyes, of course, um, was the base, the, the basis of her rule, and uh, she uh, was um, convinced that she had a divine mandate to rule. That there was a kind of trade-off between the House of Habsburg and her and, and God, um, in the sense that um, God uh, rewarded the House of Habsburg by uh, keeping it at the top of. Christianity, and uh, in return, the House of Habsburg would um, take care of the true religion and defend the true religion against Turks and Protestants and so on, against all its enemies. Um, So there was a very close relationship to the Catholic religion. But on the other hand, uh, Maria Theresia was also convinced that she had an immediate relationship to God. And her house had an immediate relationship to God, so she was not uh, she she was not dependent on the church and the earthly servants of the church, the the priests and so on, and the the Catholic hierarchy, and even the Pope. So she took a very um, independent, very sovereign attitude uh, to to the Catholic hierarchy. She tried to keep a very uh, a good relationship, uh, yeah, a good relationship to to the Pope. But if the Pope interfered and um, uh, interfered in her territories, in her uh, in the church in her territories, she would um, she would uh, not tolerate that. So, and she began to establish uh, church reforms, which made the church in her in her lands uh, instruments of uh, the central um the central administration and the, the her own uh, her own rule um, and um so this was again this very ambiguous um relationship to, to catholicism and now the jesuits um are a very special case because um on the one hand uh, her house had a very Close relationship to the Jesuit order since the age of confessionalization or the age of the Counter Reformation, and the Jesuits were a very important pillar of, of um, the Catholic Catholic rule. But and, and her confessors were Jesuits, her advisers uh, were some of her advisors were Jesuits, but. Um, on the other hand, um, the, um, she shied away from a conflict with the house of Bourbon, um, who fought the order. Uh, yeah, uh, the the uh, king of Spain and the king of France fought against the Jesuit order. And she uh, that was at a time when she um, had just established a strong alliance with France through the marriage uh, of Marie Antoinette with Dauphin, etc. Um, so the French were her new allies, and so she shied away from, uh, from um, a conflict with um, the French king and the House of Bourbon in general. And so when they um, uh, uh, forced the Pope to, dissol- to dissolve uh, the order, she did not uh, protest in any way. And This was one reason, but on the other hand, it was also for her a very uh, um, advantageous situation because she could use the properties of the Jesuit order to uh, establish a um, a, um, a, um, a, um, a secular uh, system of education, which was under state control. Now, she could bring the educational system, system under her own control. Because the Jesuits, the Jesuit order was of course the uh most important um, pillar of the educational system, the higher educational system in all Catholic countries. So the dissolution of the order was a very um good occasion to uh get the educational system under her state control.
1: In Edward Crankshaw's nineteen sixties biography of Maria Theresa The subtitle of the book is The Last Conservative. Now, in the March issue of the British periodical, The Literary Review, which contains John Adamson, a a 17th century British uh, specialist of your book, which is extremely laudatory, I must say, if you haven't read it. Uh, it, The um, review is titled Maria Teresa's Revolutionary Rule. Revolutionary or conservative? In your opinion, which one of the two is she, or was she?
0: Uh, yeah, I would say uh, neither nor or uh, both yeah, this is uh, as i I wanted to point out by saying that her rule was ambiguous and her personality was ambiguous as the whole century was. um I would say uh, she was she was. Both. I mean, um, on the one hand, in many respects, she was um, revolutionary. Revolutionary would be an exaggeration, I would say. She wasn't a revolutionary. Uh, She was, she was, her rule was based on Tradition on century-long tradition of the Archducal House of Habsburg, of the um, tradition of the Catholic Church, uh, and so on. So basically, I would say her reign was, her rule was was very, very uh, much rooted in tradition. But on the other hand, as I also try to to point out, um, she was an enlightened ruler uh, without being aware of it. Yeah, and her, her reforms and her um, also a very courageous uh, way of dealing with the problems of her time uh, was in a way uh, not revolutionary, but it was not no longer based in uh, on traditional um, the traditional art of rule. But I I would say I would stress the traditional part more than the revolutionary part. I would say and the reforms she. Um, I mean, there is a series of reforms that she initiated, uh, and that was of course um, uh, innovative, not revolutionary but innovative but on the other hand, the reforms um did not achieve what she wanted to achieve the reforms um or she she initiated a series of reforms and reforms of reforms of reforms once she had um uh, uh, Installed this 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 reform policy, um, all the reforms turned out not to be sufficient, and so uh, a, a, a whole um, avalanche of reforms uh, started, and that was of course not what she had uh, in mind. And when she uh, grew old, and when she before she died, she was absolutely convinced sh- that her reign had been a complete failure, complete failure. She had failed in her own Perception. She had failed in any respect. And so, uh, and she, of course, would never have called herself a revolutionary. Um, um, so it, it depends on what you mean by revolution, what you mean by uh, conservative and tradition, but she would always have called herself a conservative monarch, I think. I mean, the, the word conservative. Conservative and conservatism is, of course, uh, a concept of the 19th century and uh, was not, uh, I mean, in the the 18th century, uh, this concept was not existing uh, and the the concept of revolution and revolutionaries um, um, neither. So these are anachronistic uh, adjectives in a way.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: Oh, that's a very <laughs> interesting, very very difficult question. Um, what should they take away? I mean, I I think it would be good uh, if the readers would um, would develop an an understanding of the strangeness of that period, and would be able to understand what female rule at the time really meant and uh, how the how the social logic of the time and at court at least or in this aristocratic ancien regime um, um, uh, atmosphere how the social logic worked uh, this this um, this is I think something that uh, should or was for me at least one of the most important insights I myself had when i when I uh, wrote the book and when I studied the sources, and that there is a certain pre-modern social logic um, that worked very differently from um, the social logic of our modern societies.
1: On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You're listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
0: Thank you.